Shalom, this is Rabbi David Tilkiger of Congregation Mayim Chaim, the Eastern Shores Messianic Synagogue in Daphne, Alabama. I want to thank you for taking the time to listen to this podcast of our message from Shabbat service. We pray it is a blessing to you and that you see the beauty and light of Yeshua Meshicheinu Yeshua, our Messiah, in every word you hear. Amen. Abrahamim, Father of mercies, we worship you, we love you, and we adore you. Father, I praise you for this Shabbat, for this time that you've set aside for us to gather as Mishpacha's family to worship in your presence and to hear from you. Lord, I pray that as we open up your word today that you will speak boldly into our hearts and our lives. It will be your word spoken, your heart received, that nothing of me will be involved except that which you have ordained specifically for this purpose. Father, I thank you for being a gracious and loving God, for being caring and for having provided Yeshua, our Messiah, for our salvation, to restore us and renew us in our walk with you. B'shem Yeshua Meshechenu. In the name of Yeshua, our Messiah, we pray, and everyone says, Amen and Amen. So uh, this week's Parsha is Parsha Chayesarah, um, which means the life of Sarah. Uh, and it's really interesting that this Parsha begins with the words Chayesarah, the life of Sarah, but then we recognize that the life of Sarah, or the Parsha named the life of Sarah, really has nothing to do with Sarah. Um, if we look at it, it actually uh, begins with Sarah dying and then her being buried and then moving on with the story. Um, and as we move forward, the narrative begins to shift from Abraham and Sarah to Isaac and ultimately Isaac and Rebecca. And what's really awesome about this particular Parsha and this idea of the, the name of the Parsha not really being about what the Parsha is about, you know, the, the name of the Parsha is based off the first uh, significant and substantial word in the first line or first verse of the Parsha in Hebrew. Uh, and so what's interesting about this that I, I always have loved about Chayi is that the Parsha named the life of Sarah really tells us that the life of Sarah didn't matter without the life of Isaac continuing on past her. And so I, I love this idea because for us, uh, as we live our lives, as we walk out our faith, as we live in the world that we live in, if our lives don't impact others, if our lives don't have a, uh, um, uh, a continuation in the lives of others, uh, if you have children watching your children grow up to work and serve the Lord, uh, if, uh, if you are involved with a community watching those that you impact in your community, uh, learn and glean and take from you as they move on in their life. And I think it's most important that our lives impact somebody else's. So that we have this idea of this continual flow of uh, the reality of a walk with the Lord that moves on from us. Because a lot of times we look at our walk in the Lord and we think about, okay, what can I do for my walk in my life? But what we see here with Chayisara is that it's really about what we leave behind. It's one of the things I love about Stephen's testimony in the book of Acts is as Stephen's looking, literally looking death in the eye uh, as the, 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 the mob is ready to stone him to death. They ask him, hey, do you have anything you want to say to defend yourself? And he doesn't waste any time. He doesn't mince any words. He defends himself not for the sake of getting out of it, but for the sake of the gospel. And so then the next uh, chapter of that book, of the book of Acts, is him starting with the very beginning and giving the message of Messiah and how he got to where he was at that point in time and the reality of God's faithfulness to his people. And one of the most interesting things is at the end of that passage, when they stone Stephen and they kill him, all the men who were involved in the mob that stoned him dropped their cloaks at uh, a gentleman's feet 
looking for his approval of what they just did. He was the one in charge of this whole mass mob of, of psychopaths, uh, and for lack of a better way of wording it today. And so as we, we look at this, what we realize is that individual that they were looking for approval from was a guy named Paul who we now know as Rab Shaul, as the, 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 uh, the rabbi, uh, uh, Paul, who wrote the epistles, most of the epistles that we read through the Brukha Deshah, the New Covenant writings, the New Testament. And what's really neat is that I wholeheartedly believe that that was Stephen's Chayisera moment. That was Stephen's moment of seeing his life matter past his life, past his death. Because what we recognize is two chapters later, the same man who randomly pops on the scene at the end of Stephen's life is the man that comes to faith in this miraculous divine encounter with the Lord and ultimately goes on to impact the world more than we could probably ever imagine and has impacted the world more than we could imagine for the last 2,000 years. And I wholeheartedly believe that the words that Stephen shared in his final moments were used by God to soften Paul's heart for the reality of the encounter with the presence of the Lord he was about to experience. And I believe that that was his Stephen's Chayesera moment. And so for us, we have to understand we have Chayesera moments. We have to honor that time and what the Lord has invested in our lives as we continue on so that what we are here for, what we have been given the beautiful gift of salvation for is to feed that into others' lives so that it continues on past us and others come to know Messiah and share that as they go through. But what's really neat, uh, I think, in this Parsha is the beauty of watching God's faithfulness to his people, watching his faithfulness to his promise to Abraham and ultimately to Isaac and Jacob and so on. In this Parsha, we see uh, in uh, Genesis chapter 23, Sarah dies. They bury Sarah. They go through the whole discussion with the cave of Machpelah to try and acquire it, to bury her. And then they move into Isaac and Abraham goes, hey, you know what? Uh, Isaac's here now. Uh, Sarah's gone. I've got to be thinking about the future of my family. Uh, so he takes Eliezer, his, his lead servant, the servant in charge of everything in his household, and he says, all right, I want you to go back to my homeland. I want you to go back to Haran, to my family, uh, and I want you to find a wife for Isaac. Do not take Isaac there because Isaac cannot leave the promised land. The promised land is part of God's promise to and through him. He cannot leave here. Do not ever come back asking him to go with you to find somebody. You go find uh, a bride for him and bring her back here. And he says, okay, well, that's cool, but, but what do I do if she won't come? And he goes, then you're, you're released. I, I release you of your oath that you're making to me. If you can't get uh, someone to come with you, um, then I release you of your oath. Just make sure Isaac never goes there. And we realize that later on, what is it Isaac turns around and does? Is he sends Jacob back there. The same reality that Isaac should have never left the promised land was true for Jacob, but Jacob didn't hold on to that, or Isaac didn't hold on to that reality as Abraham did. And so ultimately he sends Jacob back. But here we see Eliezer goes to, uh, back to, to Haran, back to where Abraham had came to the promised land from, to Canaan from. And in verse 12 of chapter 24, it says, Adonai, the God of Abraham, my master, he said, please make something happen. This is Eliezer praying. Please make something happen before me today and show loyalty to Abraham, my master. Look, I am standing by the spring of water and the daughters of the men of the city are going out to draw water. Now, let it be that the young woman to whom I say, please tip your jar so that I may have a drink and she will say, drink and I also will water your camels. Let her be the one you have appointed for your servant Isaac. So by this, I'll know that you have shown graciousness to my master. It's a pretty substantial request, right? 
uh, very specific. He says, Lord, I will know that you are at work in this situation, and this is the right girl. If I ask for a drink of water, and she goes above and beyond my needs. And anybody ever done research on camels? They drink a lot. They can drink something like 63 gallons, I think it is, in less than 15 minutes in one sitting, right? That's one camel, 63 gallons in less than 15 minutes. She's got a pot that she's pulling water up with, all right? So he says, Lord, when I ask for a sip of water, if she says, I will also water your camels, then I'll know that you're the one that, that, that this is you, that you sent her. So uh, Rebecca walks up and he says, hey, can I have some water? And she says, yeah, I'll give you water and I'll get water for all your camels too. And then she proceeds to do so. And she draws water over and over and over and over and over again for the camels. And all of a sudden this light starts to go off in Eliezer's head and he goes, hmm, this is kind of, maybe this is real. Maybe this is what's going on. Maybe this is what's happening. So he asks her uh, uh, where she's from, what household she's from, what what family she's from, where she lives, etc., and then finds out that she's from Betuel's house, that she's Betuel's daughter. Verse 23, whose daughter are you? He said, please tell me, is there room in your father's house for us to spend the night? Not them together. He was wondering if him and the camels had a place to stay, not him with her. Just don't want that to be weird because, yeah. Verse 24, she said to him, I'm the daughter of Betuel, son of Milcha, whom she bore to Nahor. In other words, I am the daughter of your servant Abraham's brother. Right? Now, she didn't go through all that because she didn't know who he was the servant of, but that's who Betuel is, is the brother of Abraham. And yes, in the 21st century, weird, right? Going to get a bride from the brother's house, that's cousins, that's just not right. Uh, I don't care what state you're from, that is not right. Um, but nonetheless, in this world, we don't have quite as large a gene pool as we do today. Um, so uh, he, he finds her, he finds out he's from his father's house, she's from his uh, master's household, his family, and all of a sudden he goes, this is the one. This is the proverbial one for, uh, for, for Isaac, for my master. So he goes with her back to her house, uh, and, uh, and she brings out uh, Betuel, her father, she brings out Laban, her brother, uh, and they come out and, uh, and offer to bring them in for, to, to feed them and say, okay, come on in, we'll feed you and we'll put you up for the night because you're from Abraham, it's okay. And he says, no, no, listen, I don't, I don't, I'm not willing to eat till I tell you why I'm here. Like, I'm here for a purpose. I want to take care of that purpose. And so they say, okay, cool, tell us what you're here for so we can get this over with. So he tells them uh, exactly what he's there for, he tells them the whole narrative of what Abraham asked him to do, why he sent him there, what he wanted from him, and so on and so forth. And they go, okay, cool, that sounds good. Okay, let's eat. You know, you can take her as, as Isaac's wife, that's fine, whatever. What's really interesting is Laban is the same character that when we move forward to Jacob's story in a few weeks, Laban is the one that tries to trick Jacob, right? And I go into this because this is really what I want to focus on uh, in this message today, uh, is Laban, relative of Abraham, the, the nephew of Abraham, or a nephew of Abraham, uh, and Laban is trying to derail the direction of what God has in store for Abraham's household, right? We notice that with Jacob. We notice that with the, the whole scenario there, but nobody really pays attention to it here. And he does the same thing here in this Parsha because then they get up the next morning and, and Eliezer's ready to go and he goes to, the, to Laban and to Betuel. He says, okay, cool. Uh, let me go ahead and take her. Here's all your gifts. I'm gonna take her back to my master's household so that I can show that the Lord has been uh, gracious and has blessed my master's household and I've been successful. And Laban and his mom goes, Cool, that's awesome. We'll send her with you, but do me a favor. Let her stay here for a week or 10 days. 
Uh, actually, he says for a day or 10, right? Let her stay here for a day or 10. Uh, kind of sneaks that extra in there. He says, let her stay behind. You go on ahead and we'll send her to you. We'll send her. We'll make sure she gets there. And he says, no, no, I'm not leaving today without her. And, and I think part of that conversation was probably, again, you're not getting any of this stuff unless she leaves with me. Um, but he says, I'm not leaving today without her. When, when I leave here, if she's going with me, she's going with me now. And so he's like, let's ask the girl and see what she says. And she says, cool, I want to do this. Let's go. Uh, I, I want to go meet my husband. I want to go do this. And, uh, and what we realize is, is Laban's trying to kind of snake his way into this scenario and derail what, what's happening here and what God's trying to do. And we see him ultimately start to pull that off with Jacob, right? So we get to Jacob. He does the whole trickery with Leah over uh, uh, Rachel. And then he gets Rachel. And there's all this craziness that goes around that. And then it goes on beyond there into all kinds of other problems with the sheep and, and his payments and so on. Um, and what we realize is, and, and I truly believe this, the promise that God made to Abraham and ultimately to Isaac and Jacob and through their descendants is that through the seed of Abraham, which is through Isaac, is through Jacob, ultimately is the, the Messiah, through the seed of Abraham, the entire world would be blessed. Not just Abraham's household, not just Abraham's family, not just Abraham's descendants, but all the nations of the world would be blessed, right? So he says, through your seed, the Messiah, the entire world will come to restoration and relationship with me is the ultimate reality here. And the enemy goes, no, I didn't want them to be in your presence in the garden because if I can't be like you, they can't be like you. I didn't want them to be in your presence in the garden. I did everything in my power to make sure they got kicked out. And now you're telling me you've got a plan to restore them again and it's going through, okay, cool. Now that we know where this is going on, right? Because he tells Adam uh, or tells the descendancy of Adam that he's going to bring restoration. Everything's going to be okay. And so the enemy's sitting around going, okay, who's it going to be? Who's it going to be? Who's going to come that'll ruin this? Who's going to be the one that'll crush my head? Who's going to be the one that will end my reign of terror over the world? And uh, he's following Adam's lineage, and then he gets to Noah. Okay, maybe it's Noah. Noah's here. Wiped out everybody else. Noah's left. It's clearly Noah. I'm going to mess with Noah for a while. He gets beyond Noah. He goes, oh, man, it wasn't Noah. There's still more coming. Okay, what's going on? He gets to Abraham, and now we've narrowed it down to a family, a nation that will come forth from this man and his family. And the enemy goes, okay, cool. So it's going to come through Abraham. So I'm going to try to derail Abraham. All right, let's throw Hagar in here. That'll, that'll help. We'll, we'll mess up things there. Oh, man, he got around Hagar. Okay, what else can we do? What else can we do? And he continues to mess with Abraham for a while. Then Isaac comes along, and he starts to mess with Isaac for a while. He says, okay, well, Abraham's now had Isaac. This is son of promise, so it's Isaac's seed that's going to, so I'm going to start attacking Isaac. And then Jacob and Esau comes along, and we see all the headache that went on with Jacob and Esau. And he's like, okay, one of these, it's a 50-50. Let's throw the coin, see what it's going to be. And God says, Jacob's the one that the, the promise is going through. And so he starts to attack Jacob. And Laban comes back on the scene, right? And all of this is going on. And then Jacob comes back and he goes, oh man, Jacob's back in the promised land. He's kind of getting back on, oh, okay, who's next? Somebody else is coming. Let's keep working at this. So the enemy keeps beating down on the heritage and the lineage of Abraham's descendancy, right? Because he knows the Messiah, the one who will crush his head is coming through Abraham's lineage. And if he can stop Abraham's lineage from ever continuing, he can stop the Messiah from coming and he can stay his execu execution a little bit longer. 
So the enemy then sits back and he watches the nation of Israel continues to develop, right? So he's like, okay, Joseph's a part of this and all of this is going on. So let's see if I can get rid of Joseph. Judah's a part of this, I think. So I'm going to see what I can do with Judah. And he continues on and continues on. And God continues to bring his plan about through the children of Israel, through the descendancy of Abraham. And as we get to, to the nation of Israel and the promised land, we see, okay, now they're here. They're back in the promised land. They've now gotten the inheritance that the Lord said was This is getting a little too uncomfortable for me. The enemy starts to think, I've got to quickly figure out what's going on. And by now, the Lord has already said that the Messiah will come through the the tribe of Judah, right? Through this kingship tribe, the tribe of Judah. So now he's got a a specific tribe, a specific family to attack and to be on top of. And now he's on top of this. And we see David comes onto the scene and he's constantly trying to wipe David out, whether it's through Saul or it's through his early enemies or it's through the Philistines or it's through... He's constantly trying to wipe David out. And then Solomon pops. He's like... Jeez, now there's another one. Okay, I guess I got to go after Solomon. And the enemy's on top of Solomon trying to ruin him. Look, in all honesty, this is the root of anti-Semitism. And I talk about this today because it's more prevalent and more real now than we could have ever imagined we would experience at this day and time. You know, we often say as we think about uh, the Holocaust and we, we remember the Holocaust, the, the show, we say, may, you know, never again, may it never happen again. But the reality is, is no matter how uh, fairy tale we want to make things sound, to say never again while we're watching it start to happen before our eyes, while we realize that the root of what caused the Holocaust never went away, that we're, we're kidding ourselves, right? We are. We're kidding ourselves. We've got to be on top of guarding ourselves. We've got to be on top of protecting ourselves against the attack of the enemy, against the people of God. And the reality is, is the root of anti-Semitism is the enemy's desire to rid the world of Messiah. See, the, the enemy doesn't hate the Jewish people. He doesn't hate them at all. What the enemy hates is the Messiah because he knows Messiah will crush his head. He knows Messiah will ultimately bring an end to his reign of terror. No questions asked. And so his goal is to end Messiah. So leading up to what we know as the first century now, leading up through the temple, the first temple, the second temple, and so on and so forth, up to the first century, what we realize is everything the enemy did to the nation of Israel, he did specifically for the purpose of trying to eliminate the reality of Yeshua ever coming. Because if he can eliminate Messiah, he can eliminate his end. And Messiah came anyways. So then he thought, well, let me get rid of Messiah early. Messiah's family takes him off to Egypt. Uh, Yeshua's family takes him off to Egypt. And he's protected from the king trying to kill him. And he comes back again and he starts his ministry. And as he starts his ministry, they continue to, the enemy continues to try and wipe him off the scene. Continues to try and get rid of him. So it doesn't work. Continues to get out of it. Continues to to move around. He continues to minister. And the enemy starts to get a a little scared. Starts to wonder, okay, what's going to happen next? And he realizes he can't end the, 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 the Messiah. He can't end the seed of Abraham. Messiah ends up dying. He offers his life as a sacrifice for us. And uh, he's buried. He resurrects. He ascends into heaven. He makes a way for us to be restored with the Lord through his blood atonement on the mercy seat and the Holy of Holies in heaven. And now all of a sudden, Satan really starts to get antsy because things are getting a little uncomfortable. Things started to get real. And as we continue through the reality of what has happened in history up to this point, is you ever notice the enemy's hatred or, or his attack, his onslaught of the Jewish people never ended, right? You know why? 
because he realized that he couldn't stop the Messiah from coming, but he can try and hold off from the Messiah coming back sooner. Because the Word of God says, if you have your scriptures, go ahead and open up to Matthew chapter 23, verse 39. Matthew 23, verse 39, this is Yeshua speaking. He says, for I tell you, you will never see me again until you say, and he's speaking to Israel, until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. This is the opening statement of a Jewish wedding. This is what is said to the groom as the Jewish groom is coming under the chuppah, under the wedding canopy, is welcoming the groom in. And he says, until you, Israel, my bride, welcome me in as your husband, welcome me in as your groom, until you proclaim, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, I will not come back. He's speaking to Israel. He's not speaking to the entire world. He's speaking to Israel. It says, until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, welcoming your bridegroom, you will not see me again. We go forward to Romans Romans chapter 11, you hear me reference this a lot. It's one of my favorite passages because Romans 11 undoes most of the theological determinations made from Romans 1 through 8. Uh, we get to Romans 11, it kind of undoes all of this mess that people try to make of it as Paul goes, okay, now here's what I'm really getting at. Pay attention. So verse 13, Paul says, but, if, but I am speaking to you who are Gentiles insofar as I am an emissary to the Gentiles. I spotlight my ministry. If so, uh, if somehow I may, might provoke to jealousy my own flesh and blood and save some of them. For if their rejection, the rejection of Yeshua, leads to the reconciliation of the world, which is the promise of, uh, of, of blessing to the nations brought through the seed of Abraham, what will their acceptance be but life from the dead? So Paul says, listen, if Israel rejecting Yeshua's Messiah made it possible for the, the promise of the seed of Abraham to come to the nations, the blessing of the seed of Abraham come to the nations, how much more will it be life from the dead when Israel comes back to salvation, when Israel comes to faith? And so the enemy goes, okay, I couldn't stop Messiah, but maybe I can slow him down a little bit if I can keep the Jewish people from coming to faith. If I can keep the Jewish people from recognizing Yeshua's Messiah, if I can keep the Jewish people from proclaiming, Baruch Hashem Adonai, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And so he begins to begin to work on the body of Messiah. Just as vigilant and just as diabolically as he worked on the, the children of Abraham throughout the Tanakh, he begins to work in this new era on the body of Messiah. In the first century, the body of Messiah was, uh, uh, pr was predominantly early on, was predominantly Jewish. The nations began to come in. The body of Messiah begins to grow rapidly as not only Jewish people were coming to salvation in droves, but the nations were seeing the power of God in the midst of his people, and they were coming to faith in droves, and the body of Messiah begins to grow exponentially. And the nations begin to get blessed. We go a couple of hundred years in, and all of a sudden, the nations go, you know, we could do this thing without the Jewish people. We could still have all of this if we just stopped hanging out with them and, and doing their stuff. Let's go do it on our own, and uh, we'll make them ours. And so in, in the third century and such, we start to see the, the development of what became the church. And don't get me wrong, I absolutely wholeheartedly believe that the Lord has used, continues to use, and will continue to use the church. The church is part of the body of Messiah. The church is what has been used uh, in phenomenally amazing ways in sharing the gospel of Messiah Yeshua with the world around us. But, and here's the big caveat, but the enemy knew if he could keep the Jewish people from coming to faith, he could slow down the return of Messiah. Now, 
granted Messiah's got his own timetable, but he could try and slow down. In his mind, he could slow down the return of Messiah. So what's the best way to do this? Paul says in Romans that the nations were brought in to drive the Jew to jealousy for his God. The ding, light bulb goes off in the enemy's head. He goes, hey, I know how I can, I can keep Israel coming to faith. The ones that are supposed to lead them to faith, the nations who are supposed to become a part of Israel, who are supposed to be melded into the commonwealth of Israel, the nations who come to know the saving grace of the Jewish Messiah, the ones that are supposed to drive the Jews to jealousy for, for salvation. Instead, I'm going to make them hate the Jewish people. I'm going to get them to hate them so much that the Jewish people will turn their back on Messiah even more than they ever did. That the Jewish people will look at the nations who are supposed to drive them to jealousy, and instead of being driven to jealousy, they will be confused. They will be angered. Because what is this guy who's supposed to be the Jewish Messiah to us, to the Jewish people, if those who carry the flame of the Messiah that's supposed to be the Jewish Messiah hate the Jewish people? And so in the 3rd and 4th century and, and continuing on throughout the history of the body of Messiah moving forward, the body of Messiah begins to hack away everything that was connected to Judaism from the body of Messiah. So much so that most believers don't even really worry or concern themselves too much with the Tanakh of the Old Testament because that's the Jewish Bible, that's the Hebrew Bible, and it's not as important as the Gospels, it's not as important as Paul's writings, and so on and so forth. And we see that the body of Messiah begins to not only divide, but this gap between the two, between Jewish believers and Jewish non, and non-Jewish believers begins to grow. And the gap between the nations who have faith in the Jewish Messiah and the Jewish people who need faith in the Jewish Messiah begins to grow even farther until ultimately we get to a point where Christians start slaughtering Jewish people, left and right. And I don't mean just the Holocaust. The Jewish people were expelled from England twice under the auspices of Christianity. Those that didn't leave died. The Spanish Inquisition was under the auspices of Christianity. The pogroms in Eastern Europe were under the auspices of Christianity. The crusaders, as they were going to take Jerusalem back from the, the, the Arabs, on their way they were practicing warfare by killing and slaughtering Jewish villages, all under the auspices of Christianity. We move forward to the Holocaust. You know, a lot of people don't realize that Hitler's Mein Kampf, his manifesto, all but entirely plagiarized Martin Luther's writings. In the latter part of Martin Luther's life, in spite of all the great he may have done, in the latter parts of his life, he wrote often about how the Christian's duty was to wipe out every Jew on the face of the earth. And Hitler went, Psh, I like this dude, this is what I want to do, and takes it on. And the Holocaust, the Holocaust occurred in the auspices of Christianity. As Jews were being driven into the gas chambers, they were singing, the, the soldiers were singing hymns as they were rejoicing in what they were doing in the name of the Lord, and so on and so forth. And we move forward in history, and we see that this just continues over and over and over again. And look, this isn't to beat up on the church by any means. Don't get me wrong. Don't get me wrong at all. Some of my best friends are people in the church. Some of my best friends, some of my closest friends are pastors in, in churches in this area that I absolutely love, and they have a heart for the Jewish people. They have a heart for Israel. They have a heart for seeing the message of Messiah go forth to our people. But the history of the church has been one rooted in anti-Semitism. And it's not that the church's intention was that. Don't get me wrong there either. The church's intention, their heart was not there. But I want you to understand that anti-Semitism is the spirit of the anti-Messiah. 
we're all waiting for the anti-Messiah to come, and there will be a person who serves in that function. But the root of the spirit of the anti-Messiah is anti-Semitism. Because the enemy hates God's chosen people through whom salvation came to the world, through whom the world was to bring it back to the nation of Israel. And just as he tried to wipe the Jewish people, or particularly the, the seed of Messiah, out for years and years and years leading up to Messiah's birth, he realized he couldn't, and he turns it back around again on the body of Messiah to try and keep the Jewish people away from salvation, away from the reality of Yeshua. So the Jewish world looks at the church and goes, you're telling me he's the Jewish Messiah, but you don't look nothing like anything that we recognize as Judaism. You don't do anything that looks like it's Jewish. You don't do anything that drives me to jealousy for my God, and you most certainly, historically, have done anything but show me the love of my God. So we just experienced this major event last week, and, and look, first off, the shooting in Pittsburgh at, at Tree Life Synagogue was horrendous. Absolutely horrendous. The, from, from what I understand, the, the worst anti-Semitic action that has occurred on the, in the U.S. Uh, in the history of the U.S. Uh, absolutely atrocious. But it's nothing new for us. It's nothing new. Uh, we've experienced this kind of stuff over and over and over again throughout history. But along with that, along with that was that we got our focus, our attention on some of the wrong aspects of it. We got our attention focused on the wrong thing, and the enemy starts to go, maybe I can twist this up too. Maybe I can twist this up too. So all of a sudden, our attention gets split to more division, right? Because all of a sudden, it becomes a discussion about gun control. Or it becomes a discussion about uh, uh, the, uh, the, the uh, current administration in the White House. Or it becomes a discussion about the midterm elections this week. Or it becomes a discussion about this or about that. And not about what really matters, which is the root of the problem that we're facing right now, which is anti-Semitism, the root of the spirit of anti-Messiah. Because the, the enemy's goal, the anti-Messiah's goal is to try and eliminate the body of Messiah. To try and eliminate the effects and the works of Yeshua. None of this is anything new. This has been what the enemy's been working for and towards forever. And we, the body of Messiah, continue to feed into his egotistic actions in our midst. And we get focused on all this peripheral stuff that has nothing to do with the reality of what's going on before us. Even within the Messianic movement, we had the same thing occur when there was a, a Messianic rabbi that was asked to, 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 to pray at a, a political rally. The, the media got a hold of it and turned it into this whole big shebang about nothing that had anything to do with what it actually was, all because it happened just after the shooting in Pittsburgh. And we become even more divided. And within our own movement, we start arguing and bantering and fighting back and forth as opposed to us being unified, as opposed to the body of Messiah being unified and coming together as one so that we can see the message of Messiah go forth in a mighty and powerful way. Anti-Semitism is nothing new. It's been around since Adam and Eve because the goal of anti-Semitism, the goal of the spirit of the anti-Messiah is to destroy the works of Messiah and yours and my life so that the people of God, the promised people, the chosen people of God, the children of Abraham, the nation of Israel, the Jewish people do not come to faith in Yeshua's Messiah so that the enemy can try and hold off his execution just a little bit longer. And I want you to understand something. We, the body of Messiah, are as guilty as anyone else because we've allowed the enemy to toy with us for all of this time. I don't care if you're a Jewish believer or a, a Gentile believer. 
We have allowed the enemy to toy with us all this time. The enemy has no ground in our lives that we don't give him. He doesn't earn it. He wasn't awarded it by the Lord. We open those doors up. And so when anti-Semitism exists within the body of Messiah, when anti-Semitism exists, and, and, and you got to understand, those who are not believers, who are anti-Semitic, often look to the church and go, see, even the Christians don't like the Jews. Even the Christians want to see them dead. And again, blanket statement, not all Christians are like this. Not all of Christianity is anti-Semitic by any means. And a growing number of churches and believers the world over are having their eyes open to the importance of the Jewish people in Israel and the plan of redemption of the world. But the reality is, is for 2,000 years now, we, the body of Messiah, who should know better, have allowed the enemy to use us to try and thwart the plan of salvation for the Jewish people. And this isn't some, you know, uh, message about how the Jewish people are superior or greater. Because look, I think we can look at the history that my people have had and realize we're just as bad at mucking things up as anybody else is. But the reality is, the absolute reality is, that Messiah will not return until Israel comes to faith. All right? The entire Jewish world is longing for Mashiach. We have found him. We know who he is. And instead of the body of Messiah driving the Jewish people to jealousy for their God so that we usher in the return of our bridegroom, we drive them further and further and further and further away. And I want to call the body of Messiah today on Solidarity Shabbat on a, a Shabbat in which the world over synagogues are packed beyond imagination because we refuse to go down in flames because of the anger of hate. Jews and Gentiles alike are filling synagogues all over the world, not just Messianic synagogues, but synagogues all over the world coming together to say that hatred will not win, that anti-Semitism will not win. And I want you to understand that we, the body of Messiah, have a role to play in making sure that anti-Semitism does not continue. But in order for us to do that, we got to get our heads out the sand or other places that you may have it. We've got to come together in unity in Messiah so that the world sees the reality of who the promised Jewish Messiah is because he is blessing for the nations so that the nations can drive the Jews back to their God through Yeshua, through the promised Jewish Messiah. I desire nothing more than to see my Jewish brothers and sisters come to faith in our Messiah, to recognize the beauty and the power of who he is and what he has come to do, to recognize that Daniel says that the Messiah must come before the destruction of the temple, and either he's already come or we're all fools for believing in anything. And I believe he has come, and I believe that that person is Messiah Yeshua, and approximately 40 years after his death, burial, resurrection, and ascension, the temple was destroyed. And we're awaiting on his return until he plants his feet back on the Mount of Olives. And until that day comes, our purpose in the body of Messiah, as a Jewish believer, my purpose should be to see the nations come to faith in the promised Jewish Messiah. And as non-Jewish believers, your purpose should be to see Israel come to faith in the promised Jewish Messiah. It's a cyclical reality. 
We must rely on each other. We must be united together. And this is why I honestly believe a Messianic synagogue is such an important reality at this point in history, in these final days. Because it is a place where Jew and Gentile coming together as one, faithfully, weekly, daily, worshiping, praying together, worshiping together, learning together, growing together. It's a beautiful reality of what I believe is the heart of Paul, that the nation of Israel comes to faith so that it will be life from the dead for the world. Because the reality is, is Messiah is coming back. And if you are a believer in Yeshua, whether Jewish or not, your single primary driving focus should be to see Israel come to faith. And if it's not, then you really don't have a desire to see a soon return of Messiah quite like you want people to believe you do. It's time that we realign our focus on God's heart and His will so that anti-Semitism, which is the root, I believe, of the spirit of anti-Messiah, no longer has a foothold in the body of Messiah. And so that the body of Messiah can truthfully show forth the reality of the Jewish Messiah who came to bring salvation and restoration to the entire world, to the Jew first and likewise to the Gentile. Amen? Avrahamim, Father of mercies, we worship you, we love you, and we adore you. Father, I thank you that you are a God of mercy and grace that you are a God who loves us and forgives us, who cherishes us. Father, I thank you that you are a God who is able to take even the worst actions of our lives and redeem them for your good and your purpose. Father, I pray that you give us the strength to stand up against the, the efforts of the enemy to demolish your plan and your will in our lives and in the body of Messiah as a whole, that we will stand firm, united as one in Messiah to see our Jewish people come to faith, to see the nations come to faith in the promised Jewish Messiah and come together as one body united in you no longer divided by hate or division, no longer divided by uh, fear and anger, no longer divided by pointless theological arguments and, and doctrinal arguments, no longer divided by simple things like colors of carpet and a number, a color of hymnals and how often do this or that or whatever, but that we come together united in what really matters, which is the blood atonement of Messiah Yeshua, the power and the presence of your Shekhinah, your divine glory in our midst the flow of your Ruach HaKodesh, of your Holy Spirit to impact the world around us for the good of your kingdom, not our own, for the good of your name, not our own, for the purposes of yours, not ours. B'Shem Yeshua Meshachinu, in the name of Yeshua our Messiah we pray and everyone says, Amen, Amen and Amen.